Our scripture tonight is from 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought you up, brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people of Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel." And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. David is perhaps 40 now. We might imagine his temples graying, creases appearing on his forehead. He has accomplished a great deal as he approaches the midlife turn. He is a decorated war hero, overcoming Goliath at the Battle of Elah. Then came the wilderness years where he lived as a guerrilla commando, one step ahead of Saul. Then he survived a nasty civil war between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and again prevailed and presides now over a united Israel. Next, he conquered Jerusalem, built Israel's capital there. Then the Philistines launched another massive attack. David led Israel to victory. Last but certainly not least, David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, restoring public worship. And now he is in a season of peace, or what our text says is a, is a time of rest. And he has an idea. And the idea is to start a building program. There's something about this place in his journey where he looks at his own 
palace and God's presence dwelling in a tent, and he decides we need to build a great and glorious building for our God, which makes sense in his way of thinking. All the, the, the kingdoms in the ancient world had great temples, and if David's God was greater than any, then David's God should have a greater temple. And so David is a man after God's own heart, and he goes to Nathan, and he says, Nathan, what do you think about this? Nathan was his prophet. Saul had a prophet too. His name was Samuel. And Nathan says, you know, it seems good, seems good to me. Why not? Now, before we go on, who is this guy, Nathan? Let's just kind of look at that for a moment, because these prophet figures appear frequently in, in the Old Testament, and they're very important. And a prophet in the Hebrew, there's a word called nabi, which means to bubble over. And a prophet was simply someone who would receive revelation from God about God's people, uh, about an individual, and, and that revelation would bubble over and they would share it. And the purpose was to provide guidance or counsel for the people of God. Now, David would often turn to his prophets for help. Not because he couldn't hear from God himself, if you've read the Psalms, David had a pretty good relationship with God, pretty intimate relationship with God. But still, there are certain people in the body of Christ who have this prophetic gifting, and it doesn't go away. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 talks about it in the, in the life of the church today. Gave, Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So, this is still a gift that's in operation today. So, David turns to his prophet. The prophet signs off on it. And then he goes to bed. And God gives him a dream. And in the dream, God warns Nathaniel that David is doing something that he really doesn't want. And God, in kind of a gentle, almost playful way, kind of teases David, hey, would you build me a house to dwell in? I haven't lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. I've been in a tent the whole time. And essentially, what he's saying is, David, I appreciate you know, your desire here, and his desire seems to be genuine. But David, I, uh, I didn't ask you for this. I never asked you to build me a building. Matter of fact, the tent thing was okay with me. You kind of get the, get the feeling from this. God will build a temple himself when he's good and ready. And if a house is to be built for him, he'll name the time and the place in the builder. The initiative will come from God and not from David. Now, there's a, a spiritual principle here that I want to think about just for a moment. And it goes something like this. We can attempt great things for God and still be outside of his will. <laughs> That's a tough one, folks. Let's think about it for a minute. Let me say it again. We can attempt great things for God and still be outside of his will. Well, give David the benefit of the doubt. He's a passionate worshiper. He loves God. There's nothing wrong with what his desires, but God essentially says, I know, but that wasn't what I asked you to do. 
And I, I wonder, and I almost cringe when I think about when I go to heaven, <laughs> and God kind of rolls the highlight film. Um, I hope that's not a part of it, but I kind of feel it might be. And, and he says, remember that? I, I didn't really ask you to do that. <laughs> oh, and that? Uh, that was your idea. Oh, and that one? You love that one. You spent four years on that degree. That <laughs> uh, wasn't my idea. Do you have a project, a movement, a relationship, a path that you're on right now that God might say, thank you, but I didn't really ask you to do that. Scan your life and ask that question. Uh, It's hard to know, isn't it? That's the tricky thing about this. I mean, I think we all want to do the right thing, but how do you know when God has invited you to do this versus you just really want to do it, and it's in God's will? A couple of uh, possible symptoms as you go down the road that might suggest that it was your idea, not his, a lack of peace, confusion, a feeling of being constantly drained, a lack of joy and hope, a lack of God's presence, a lack of fruit, troubling dreams. Now, you might be thinking, I thought that was the Christian life. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, and sometimes it is, right? We certainly don't want to say, if you're following God, everything will be easy. But I think the difference is, if you are stepping into a stream that God has invited you into, there will be a deep inner core of peace and joy and endurance as you, as you carry it out. And I might also say that you might need someone like a Nathan in your life who really knows you and really loves you and really has a vision for your life to say, I, I, don't, I don't think you're supposed to be in that relationship. I don't think you really need that house. I'm not sure it's time for graduate school. Whatever it is. Now, when you, when you look at this, there's a little bit of pride in, in what, when you think about what David's doing here because David looks into the heavens to the creator of Everything that was and is and ever shall be, the Alpha and the Omega, the God who hurled the galaxies into being, the all-powerful, the all-gracious, the all-sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. And he says, hey, let me tell you what I'm going to do for you next, big guy. Here we go. Well, I wonder how much of what passes for kingdom work is us saying, God, I got another idea I'm going to do for you thought of something else I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do for you. A wise person once told me, a need does not constitute a call. Um, how many times have we met a need when God didn't ask us to? That is really hard, isn't it? And Jesus, of course, is, is the ultimate example. There are a lot of people Jesus didn't heal, didn't feed, didn't 
teach. He just kept walking. And, and when he does heal a guy in John 5, uh, walking by dozens that he didn't heal, somebody says, why did you heal that guy? He says, my father's working until now, and I'm working. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. In other words, what, what he's saying is, I don't just go out and think this stuff up. I figure out where God's at work, and that's the only stuff I do. Now, some of us have a bias for action. Uh, we're, we're Americans. And if you've ever worked in other cultures, it's not always that way, right? You know, it's, I worked a lot in the Eastern Bloc um, many years ago, and I remember being at pastor's meeting, and, and, and the whole prevailing ethos was, we can't do anything, because that was our social experience. And American pastors' meetings are, we can do anything. Well, a bias for action is a great thing. Uh, uh, Fear-based passivity is not a good thing. But a bias for action can get you into trouble because a bias for action can lead you into things, even seemingly good things, that God never called you into. And that can get you into deep weeds. Now, I think it's very significant that, that David is in this period of rest here. There's kind of this feel at the beginning of the passage that David is kind of in a Sabbath period. Because that's one of the things the Sabbath is supposed to do. One of the reasons we do this tonight is that you can step away from all the craziness of your life, get quiet, and ask the Lord, am I still doing the things I was supposed to be doing? Because if you never stop enough to ask, you might not know. One of the crazy things about open water swimming, and I've only done you know, a number of races right now, but the hard part about it is you get off course when you put your head down. You swim faster when you put your head down, but you drift to one side or the other. And I was in a race a year ago, and a guy, a guy in a canoe hit me on the head and said, Sir, you are way out of the course. <laughs> and, and, you know, what am I going to do? So, and I was, because I was thinking, I'll go faster if I just keep my head down. Well, now what I've learned to do is about every five strokes, I have to stop and look where I am. I think we do the same thing in our spiritual life. It's faster if I just put my head down. Let me paddle harder. And you miss the opportunity for God to say, you're on a road I didn't send you down. I didn't start that quest for you. You did. I knew a pastor once whose ministry stopped, but he didn't. And it was really sad. This was many years ago. It was just very clear that he was done at that particular ministry. But for whatever reason, whether it was fear of not knowing anything else to do or needing a paycheck, and I, I get all those things, he just kept going. And over time... His ministry just wilted and died because God took his hand off of it because he was afraid to stop and ask this thing that's so important to me. Is it that important to you, God? See, this is where it gets really, really messy. We all get about terrible things being idols. We all get that. Nobody, nobody's bad enough to fall for that. But how about a beautiful thing being an idol? How about a dream you've had your whole life 
that somewhere along the way turned into an obsession that you can't live without. Ooh, that's scary stuff. Well, God gently corrects his enthusiastic son, and he'll do that for us. Um, How does he do that? How does he correct us? Well, let's not miss the obvious. He he sends somebody a dream. That's one way he can do it. And I, I, I do think God can do that for us, for people that love us. He sends a prophet. The prophet shares a word. But then God also challenges some of David's theology in a gentle way. And honestly, I, I don't know quite what to make of these verses. I, I've been thinking about them all week. Actually, I've been thinking about them all my life. Because God seems to say, I'm not really into the building thing. Um, you know, he says, uh, have I asked anybody to build me a building? Uh, you lived in tents. I live in tents. There almost seems to be this idea that, that hey, David, we, we're a pilgrim people. We do better when we're just sort of, to you and me together, fluid, responding to my initiative. Now, we know eventually he builds a temple. But in, in these early passages, uh, God seems to say, David, be careful here. You may need that building more than I do. Well, the next thing that happens is God changes the whole conversation. The first part of the conversation, God, I will do this for you. By the way, I think you could say that's religion. God, this is what I'm going to do for you. I know it's 4th of July. I'd rather be on the boat. I'm going to go to church for you, buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will do this. I'll put filters on my computer. I'll get an accountability partner. I'll give. I, I will do this. Well, there's this fascinating movement that comes in the, in the story right now. First of all, God reminds David, by all God has done for David. I took you from the pastor from following the sheep. This kind of feels a little bit like the book of Job. David, 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 calm down, calm down, calm down. Let me remind you of something. Son, I saved you and pulled you out of the sheepfold. And then God tells David what he's going to do for him now. He's going to bless him in two ways. I'm going to make you a great name. And I'm going to appoint you a place for my people, Israel, so that they can dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. So he promises to bless David. And then he shifts the conversation to what he's going to do for David's descendants. And now we are getting into some of the most significant verses of the entire Old Testament. God says, the Lord declares that he will make you a house. You see the the irony here? David says, hey, God, I will make you a house because you need one. I got one. You don't have one. I'm going to make you one. God says, actually, I'm going to make you a house, a dynasty. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I'm going to give you a son. He's going to give him Solomon. And he does. 
He'll build a house for my name and I'll establish. Now listen to this. This is why this prophecy is so important and why it's quoted so many times in the New Testament. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. And God, eight different times, says, I will do this. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. This is an unconditional promise to establish the rule of God through the line of David forever. Now, when we read this promise 3,000 years later, and if you've read any of your Old Testament, you know any of the history there, you know that the kings who followed David failed miserably and that they wound up in exile, right? And that for 500 years, there was no heir of David on the throne in Israel. But God had promised, I will establish your reign, David, forever. And so what did they do? They kept looking. The prophet Isaiah, many of the prophets looked for the fulfillment of that prophecy. Uh, Isaiah prophesied that one day Israel will say, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be in his shoulders. And again, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, who was Jesse, David's father, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him and all the nations shall see him out. There's all these prophecies that say that one day a child of David will reign on the throne again. So what happened? Jesus happened. The son of David came to fulfill God's covenant with David. And that's why Matthew begins his gospel by tracing the ancestry of Jesus all the way back to David. The book begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Luke in his gospel does the same thing. The angel Gabriel says to Mary, the Lord God will give to your son the throne of his father David, and he will reign forever. Now, Jesus fulfills the kingdom promise, but in different ways than people expected. His throne is a cross, and his kingdom is no longer 90 miles of desert real estate along the Mediterranean, but a kingdom that reigns in the hearts and the lives of all who follow him. So at the end of the day, this wonderful passage, we call it, God's covenant with David is really the gospel in a nutshell. It begins with David telling God what he will do for him. And it ends with God telling David what he will do for him. I will make you a great name. I will appoint a place. I will give you rest. I will raise up your offspring. I'll establish his kingdom. I'll establish the throne. I'll be to you a father. I will discipline him. And so I want to end with this thought. Where in your life do you need to move from your I will to his I will? Let's pray.